And Father, we, we come today rejoicing. We come today rejoicing in the gospel. There's the one unifying reality that, we, that brings us all here together today is your son, Jesus. We're either united together as brothers and sisters in Christ or we've gathered together here with a curiosity and a, a wondering of who is this Jesus? What is this Christianity? And Lord, today I pray for all of us that we'll have a better understanding when we leave here today of, of just who your son is. A better understanding of the gospel, a better understanding of the joy that is found in Christ. Lord, I pray that you will be with those who may be hurting today. Within our body and around the world, but specifically in this room, Lord, I pray that you will encourage hearts. Minister to souls today through the preaching of your word. No matter what we came in here with or what we're dealing with, Lord, let our, our minds and our hearts be just focused today exclusively on what you would have to say to us through the preaching of your word. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody today. If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. I'm excited uh, to be back again this Sunday. It's, again, it's so amazing how fast these weeks just roll. It's one after another. They keep coming. But a couple things uh, to be on, uh, on the mind as we uh, move in uh, to today's uh, time together. One is this afternoon at 3.30. I finally figured out what time I had scheduled this thing for. Exactly. 3.30 this afternoon, we're going to be over at the ministry center. Um, We're going to be over there. There there is no child care, but feel free, come. We'll have 3.30 today. Same exact thing we'll be doing this afternoon will be offered Wednesday at 6.30. So if you want to have one spouse come in, one spouse come the other, or both come together, bring children, it, it doesn't matter. Come on together. We're going to be talking about the question, what is God like? Really, we're going to look and see, okay, can God be known? And if so, what can we know about God? And we're going to cover all of that in about an hour and 15 minutes, all right? You know, so cover it all exhaustively in that amount of time. But looking forward to being together um, in that if you do come this afternoon, guaranteed if you or uh, your couple, every individual, every couple that comes, will receive uh, this book, Who is Jesus? And if we really want to know God, we need to know who Jesus is because we can't know God rightly without knowing Jesus biblically. And so we want to give away a copy of Who is Jesus by Greg Gilbert to everybody who comes uh, this afternoon. If we have enough left, we'll be giving away on Wednesday um, as well. One more announcement. On August 13th, we're going to have a fun family fellowship to, together as a church family uh, down by the river, not in a van. But we're going to gather together. First service got it. You all didn't. So you failed the test on that van down by the river. Never mind. Um, we'll keep moving. We're going to be down. Uh, we're going to have tubing, uh, rafting, and we're going to be meeting. It's going to be hot dogs and fellowship. So basically, 3 o'clock on August 13th, we're going to gather together kind of float down the river, have fun together, and then come and eat hot dogs and have fun, all right? And you can sign up online right now. Not right now. Wait till after the service is available. If you, can't, if you don't get online, go to Brian Gash. He'll take care of you um, on, on that end. He'll figure that out. But go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 
I feel much more comfortable preaching the Word than I do giving announcements. Uh, so let's, uh, let's get into that together. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one of the ones from the, the side of the aisles uh, that are located next to you. If you don't have one at all, please come talk to me, and we'll make sure that changes uh, after the service. Now, in the church that I grew up in, and I'm sure we can all, if you've been in church for any point in time in your life, and I understand that some people in here have not, that's fantastic as well, all right? But I grew up in, in a, a church and. A lot of stereotypes can be associated with the church. And one individual was the guy that you could count on every single week. Um, you knew exactly where he was going to sit, and you knew that he was going to say amen uh, an absurd amount of times throughout the service. Like, all the time. And so, for, you know, we could call him, like, Amen Bob, okay? Amen Bob liked to amen all the time. And just for those who may not be aware, the word amen is kind of a one word, word of affirmation, of agreement. It's like to a pastor, it's like, preach it, brother. You just keep bringing it. And like, come on, I'm right there with you. I'm standing beside you. And, you know, it's just that, that, that yay raw for a pastor or just an, an agreement as a congregation. Well, amen, Bob uh, was the guy who, let's just say he said amen for just about everything. Whether it was true or not, amen, Bob was amening um, something. And you didn't know, really, if he was saying it in agreement or if he was just, like, daydreaming um, at that point in time. And, like, he's just thinking about lunch and amening what he's thinking about having for, for dinner that night. You, you had no idea with amen, Bob. Now, amen, Bob's very vocal. We have other people within congregations, and you'd be like, well, this might identify me. But they're just as quiet, reserved poker face on. You can't tell anything that they're thinking in, in that moment. And you're looking at them from my perspective, and you're like, do they really agree with me? Or are they disagreeing with me? Do they want to kill me? Uh, seen those looks before. And, and, and then, or maybe they're just constipated. I don't know. I mean, you have all the different looks that, that are out there from people within a congregation. But here's the thing. You can't judge a book by its cover, can you? And you can't really understand what somebody's thinking by how you perceive that they're responding. Whether it's an amen or whether it's a, um, a look on their face or whether it's an action, whether it's in music or whether it's in the preaching time, you name it. We, we can get in a lot of trouble if we start perceiving how people are responding just by those outward uh, affirmations. I remember one time uh, I heard Matt Chandler. How many of you are familiar with who Matt Chandler is? Okay, a lot of you. If you're not, he's a pastor in Dallas, Texas, and um, out in the suburbs of Dallas. And he exchanged pulpits with an African-American pastor one Sunday. And they exchanged pulpits. I forget where his friend was located, but they exchanged pulpits and got to swap congregations for a Sunday. And they got back together, and they were talking about how it went. And so... You know, Matt comes back, and he's had this experience with a very vibrant, exuberant African-American congregation. And if you know Matt's personality at all, he's like, yes, this is awesome. He's talking about all the reaction. And then you come, and he's talking to his African-American friend, and he says, you know, how did it go? He goes, well, you know, I got a few amens and a few head nods. And again, remember, this is predominantly white, suburban, Dallas church, and Matt Chandler goes, dude, a couple of amens, the head nods, you killed it, man. Like, every church is different, right? They're going to respond in various different ways, and just because somebody's got, got their hands on their side doesn't mean they're not worshiping. doesn't mean they're not responding. In, in some other churches, they're going to have hands up, and people are going to, amen, you, you can't judge those things. 
And all that to say, every pastor, every pastor wants you to agree with them when they're preaching. Right? Why else would I be up here? I want you to agree with and believe in everything that I am teaching. But there are going to be some of you in here who will not. And just the, the way the world works, you will not always believe everything I'm saying. But a pastor must never be one who adjusts his message to, to the, for the applause or the approval of those in attendance. He must always faithfully preach the gospel. Faithfully preach the text. No matter how controversial that may be. He must not be a man who looks for the applause and the amens of men. Though I do like some amens when there is an agreement, all right? That, that is okay. But as we're going to see today, Jesus does a lot of preaching. But you know what we're not going to see Jesus receiving a lot of? Amens. In fact, what we're going to see throughout Jesus' ministry and out his preaching is we're going to see a lot of ruffling of feathers. We're going to see Jesus with a lot of controversy that's ensuing simply by speaking the truth. So that's where we pick up today in Mark chapter 2. The controversy of Jesus' ministry begins. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowds were coming to him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the, at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose up and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees went that when that day, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, 
and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So once again, there's a lot taking place here within these 22 verses. There's a lot of questions being asked. There's a lot of answers that are being given. And they're all united under this kind of growing tension of controversy that is surrounding Jesus and his, his preaching and his ministry. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at three questions that are coming from these passages. Three questions that are asked or thought to be asked of Jesus. And we're going to look at how Jesus responds. Starting with question number one. Why does Jesus speak like that? The question rises, uh, re- rises after Jesus returns to Capernaum after being out in Galilee preaching for several days. He returns to Capernaum. Word begins to spread. The crowds begin to gather once again. And while he's preaching, some men bring a paralytic man to Jesus. They can't get through the door because it's so packed full of people. So they get creative. They take, go up to the top of the house, open up the roof, lower him down into the center of the room in the middle of everyone. And look what happens here. Look what Jesus' response is. It's something totally different than we've seen to this point. We haven't seen anything like it to this point. We've seen healing. We've seen cleansing. But here Jesus says in verse 5, Son, your sins are forgiven. And the moment he does, they're not hearing healing. They're not hearing cleansing. The moment he does, these scribes, these religious men of the law have a moment of like, hold up. What did he just say? He didn't say healing. He, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. And so they're thinking, not out loud, they're thinking in their hearts, they're having those questions, and they're saying, what does this man, why does he speak like that? It's blasphemy what he's saying here. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And to be fair, these questions, these They shouldn't be dismissed too quickly. We need to like hold on to these questions because they're good questions to be asked. I mean, imagine that we were all at Chick-fil-A. Obviously not this afternoon because they're closed on Sundays when we're all craving Chick-fil-A. Like, hey, let's go up. No, we can't. Anyway, not knocking them for being closed on Sundays. That's a good thing. But imagine we're all over at Chick-fil-A later this week, child night, whenever. And you have a group of people that are gathered. And some dude is talking and he says, your sins are all forgiven. I mean, the chicken's good, but it's not that good, right? And so, I mean, how are we going to respond in that moment? Hopefully, we're not going to be like, you know, that's a really nice dude, like forgiving everybody of their sins. Now, hopefully, that's not how we're going to respond. Why? Because the scribes got it right. The scribes' questions are, a good, are good questions here. Only God can forgive someone of their sin. Which means what here? It means Jesus is is claiming to do what only God himself can do. 
he at least is putting himself on the very playing field of God and actually is making a claim to be God himself. And yeah, no matter what day and time you're living in, that's controversial. That's a controversial statement. That's why they declare blasphemy. Blasphemy. Miracles are one thing. Healing's one thing. But claiming to forgive sins, now that's a whole other story that we have here. And here's what I love about this. They're not voicing any of this out loud, are they? They're all, they're all keeping this inside. There's this stuff that they're thinking. But what does Jesus do? Perceiving in his spirit what they're thinking, he responds to them. <laughs> Dudes haven't said a word, man. Like, they haven't said anything out loud. This is all stuff that's in their mind. And Jesus turns to them. Picture the room, right? You got paralytic men on the floor. Crowds packed in so nobody can fit. Scribes are asking these questions in their heart. And Jesus turns with everybody looking. And he says, why do you question these things in your heart? Like silence. What in the world? Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and go home. Walk. What's easier to say? I would have loved to have seen their faces in that moment. I would have loved to kind of be like their jaws just drop. Like, how did he know what I was thinking here? And And then to watch as he answers. But in all seriousness, what's the answer to this question? What's easier to say? Your sins are to forgive are forgiven or to actually heal somebody of paralysis? It's easier to tell somebody your sins are forgiven, right? Any of us could go out and say that. Doesn't mean we can do it, but we're not gonna have nobody's gonna have the evidence to, to say that we're wrong. But if we're claiming, if Jesus is claiming to say, hey, I'm gonna have the ability to, to heal somebody, what's he gonna have to do to back it up? Heal them. He actually has to to heal them. So this is what, what does Jesus do? He turns to the paralytic and says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus is like, you want to know how I have the authority to forgive sins? Turns to the paralytic and says, rise up. What does the paralytic do? He gets up, he picks up his mat, in complete obedience, and walks out just like Jesus commanded him to. Total opposite of what we saw the leper. I think it has something to do clearly with this man's sins were forgiven, and he's acting appropriately in response to the forgiveness of sins. He's not just being healed physically. His sins have been forgiven, and he responds in obedience Now, it's a good thing I'm not Jesus for multiple reasons. But in this particular case, if I were in that room, I would have been like, drop the mic. I'm heading out. I'm done. Like, look at this. But that brings us back to the original question. Why does Jesus speak like that? Why does Jesus speak like this? Because he can. Because he has the authority to. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God in the flesh. And he is the only one who can forgive sin. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. No one. It was controversial then. 
and it's controversial today. And it's not only because God alone can forgive sin. That's really not what's controversial. You have people all over the world that will claim belief in God. Various understandings of God. They'll say that, yes, only God can forgive sin. But that's not what's controversial. What's controversial is that God cannot be known rightly unless Jesus is known biblically. You cannot know God rightly apart from knowing Jesus biblically. Which means this. We have all probably heard at one point or another, some form or fashion, of people saying, you know what, we're, we're all on the path to, to the same destination. Like, we're all going the same place. We're just taking different paths to get there. And we've all heard various arrangements of that. Like, you know, this person's on their path, and we're on our path, and then there's people on their path, and there are all these different paths, and they're all, all going to end up in the same place in the end. And it sounds very politically correct, does it not? Very, very kind of just like, compassionate to all people. The problem, however, with that statement is it doesn't hold up biblically. And it does not hold up intellectually either. See, repenting of our sin and believing in the gospel, believing in Jesus is the only means of salvation. That's it. There is no plan B. There is no option number two. Proceed this way for another path. No, there is only one way to be made right with God. And that is by repenting of our sins and believing in Jesus. And that's controversial. That's controversial. Because it is an absolute truth claim. It it means anyone who doesn't regardless of their belief system, regardless of how good they think they are, regardless of how good society says they are, is bound for eternal judgment in, in judgment of hell if they do not repent and believe in the gospel. And that's why this next question is so imperative. Question number two, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he do it? It's a question that's preceded by a scene that's reminiscent of Jesus calling the first four disciples. Jesus passes by Levi, who is Matthew, the tax collector. He's sitting at his tax booth. Jesus walks by. He says, follow me. And what's he do? Matthew rises up, just like Simon and Andrew and James and John, and he leaves everything behind and he follows Jesus. Just like the paralytic man, he obeys Again, leper, you need to remember this. Obedience is essential in following Christ. But here's where the second question comes into play. Because what do the scribes witness Jesus doing? They witness him dining with tax collectors and sinners. Something they would never do. We're not going to dine with tax collectors and sinners. not happening. So they ask Jesus' disciples. Notice they don't ask Jesus. They ask his disciples, Why? Why is he eating with tax collectors and, and, and sinners? And there's no response from the disciples. They may be just going like, I don't know. I don't, I'm not really sure. Jesus chimes in and he gives the response. He says, those who are, who are well have no need for a physician. But those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous. But who? Sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but Sinners. It's a simple yet very profound theological statement that Jesus is making here. 
Because the scribes, they think of themselves as what? Righteous. They think of themselves as good, law-abiding citizens, religious people, good people, right in the eyes of God. They think of themselves this way, and so do many today. Most people are going to consider themselves to be pretty good people. Most people aren't going to say, yeah, I'm perfect. We're all going to admit that. But most people are like, you know, I'm a pretty good person, especially compared to that guy. Whoever that guy is, he's, like, he's the guy who gets like the short end of the straw all the time because everybody compares himself to him. We're all better than that guy, which makes us feel like we're pretty good. But when in all actuality, the only person that we're compared to is God himself. And there we fall massively short. Because here's what most people fail to see. Here's what the scribes fail to see. As Romans 3 tells us clearly, there is no one righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God on their own initiative, not one person. No one does good, not even one. Every single person on the planet is hopelessly sinful in the eyes of holy God. Every single person. Meaning these scribes, despite their faithfulness, despite their faithfulness to the law, despite their self-perceived righteousness, what are they? They're sinners. Spiritually, they are no different than the tax collectors they're mocking. They're the same. They have the same spiritual condition. They're dead in their sin and their only hope is Jesus So again, the question is, why does Jesus dine with, eat with tax collectors and sinners? For this reason. Because he has the only cure for their terminal illness. Himself. He has the only cure. The only hope for sinners in this life or the next is to repent of our sins and believe upon the Lord Jesus to follow him as Lord and Savior. That is the only hope for anyone in this life or the next. And that's why we, like Jesus, must go to sinners and give them who? Jesus. And this doesn't take programs. Not knocking programs. Programs can be a very good thing. But what it requires is faithfulness from believers. It doesn't require multi-million dollar budgets. It requires faithfulness, intentionality. It requires building relationships. Maybe it's having your neighbors over for dinner. Maybe it's you know, building relationships with, with guys and ladies and, and building those friendships along the way in various different ways. It's not always going to be comfortable. It won't always be easy. It, it may even be controversial at times. What if, you're, what if your neighbor's a Muslim? What if your neighbor's transgender? What if your neighbor is homosexual? What what if they're a wealthy bigot? What are you going to do then? It's controversial. What are people going to think if they come into my home? How are people going to respond if if they see that person out to dinner with my family? We can see the controversy. We can see the tension here. But what we need to realize from a theological side that's driving our, our, our missions and our mindset, our understanding of a world, is the only hope for this world is Jesus. And how are they ever going to believe if they never hear? And how are they going to hear in a world with so much noise? We live in a noisy world, don't we? Everybody's shouting about something. Everybody has an idea about this or that. 
Everybody has an idea of God or an idea of this and how you can be right. And what we need to understand is how are they going to hear? Is it by us yelling across the room? Hey, you need Jesus. True statement. But is that really going to be the most effective reason, way to reach somebody? Is it going to be holding up a sign at a football game? Going to make a protest? Is, is that how we're going to reach the world for Jesus? Or is it going to be looking to follow Jesus' example and go to them, dine with them, love them right where they're at, and give them Jesus? Controversy all over the place. But people need Jesus. Which brings us to our final question. Why do Jesus' disciples not fast? All these questions that they have, like, why not? Why do you do this? Why do you do that? It's all different than the norm. It's a question from the people here that's stemming from just general observation. They, they see John the Baptist's disciples. They see the Pharisees' disciples. They're all practicing fasting. Fasting being one of the, the three main pillars of, of Judaism, along with prayer and, and almsgiving. And this wasn't a legal requirement except on the Day of Atonement, but fasting can become kind of a prerequisite for religious commitment. You want to be religious? You're going to be somebody who fasts. So the observation is, well, John's disciples are fasting. The Pharisees' disciples are fasting. Why are Jesus' disciples not fasting? If you're going to be so spiritual, what's up with this? What gives? And this is Jesus' response. Again, he's answering a question with a question. Very effective means uh, of response. Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? Which, honestly, it seems like an odd question at first. Because what do you do at, at a wedding? You celebrate, right? You're not fasting. Weddings aren't a time to fast. You celebrate. I mean, it's like, pass me the cake, man. You're like, oh, it's time to celebrate. You got a, a buffet at your wedding? Like, I'm even happier. Like, all right, all you can eat nuggets, all you can eat wings. I'm talking redneck wedding, all right? Let's go. Let's party. Let, let's do this thing. But that's not what the scribes and Pharisees are, are doing, is it? That's not what we see. There's a celebration that's taking place, and they're missing it. Oh, humbug. I'm going to sit over in the corner and pout. That, that's what we see taking place here. A paralytic has been healed. Sinners are being forgiven and saved. <laughs> and all they see is Jesus saying and doing some things they don't like and understand, and they're pouting. Huh. I don't get it. I don't understand. And they're, they're, they're missing it. The kingdom of God is at hand, and they can't see the forest for the trees. <laughs> they're missing it. <laughs> and so are a lot of people today. Both lost people and people within the church, people professing Christians. So there's two things I, I really think we need to understand from here. Two things I think we can we go to opposite extremes of, but two things we need to understand as Christians. One, what we see here, there's a time to celebrate as Christians. There's a time to celebrate. See, Jesus wasn't opposed to fasting. He fasted himself, didn't he? He assumes his followers are going to fast but there's a time and place to fast. And when he's with them in person, he's saying, this is not that time. But this is what makes Jesus' response of a wedding even more interesting. Because who's the bridegroom the picture of here? Who's the bridegroom? 
Jesus. This is Sunday school answer time. Jesus is the answer here. And Jesus is saying, I'm here. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's time to celebrate, folks. He's there with them in this moment. But still, then and now, people still miss this. They fail to see that a relationship with Jesus is not intended to be boring drudgery. It's not. It's not a bunch of just rules and regulations. But sadly, as Christians, we're known more for what we're against than what we're for. Well, I can't go to church. Can't be a Christian. I won't be able to do this. I won't be able to do that. I won't be able to do this. Look what you get. You get Jesus. <laughs> it's a joyful celebration to be a Christian. A spiritual banquet, if you will. Yes, we are to be holy. But we're not to be downcast. Like gloom and doom, the world's coming to an end. That's not who Christians are supposed to be. It's possible, yes, possible to pursue holiness and morality without being a legalistic curmudgeon. (laughs) You wouldn't know that by looking at a lot of professing Christians, but it's possible. You can actually be joyful and be a Christian. We need to understand it's okay to celebrate, folks. (laughs) And we... Why? Because we of all people have every reason to celebrate. Our sins have been atoned for by the shed blood of Christ. We've been forgiven. We've been set free from our sinful bondage. We have reason to rejoice. That's why we need to be marked as a people of joy. We must not mourn when it's time to celebrate. But... There will be times to mourn. There is a time to mourn as Christians. So we can't, we're going to be very realistic. It's not going to be all joyful all the times. I think there's nothing more frustrating than that person who just walks around with that perpetual smile on their face. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, you know, the sky's falling. Yeah, but it's so great. It's beautiful as it falls. You know, like, you know that person that just, they want to say, how are you doing? And they're like, They've had the worst week you can possibly imagine. Oh, I'm great. Life's good. Jesus is awesome. Like, are you real? Are you a robot responding here? Because I don't know about you, but I have times of great sorrow. You know, as Christians, we are to be a joyful people, but we also need to understand it's okay to mourn. As Christians, there will be seasons of mourning. It's what Jesus alludes to in verse 20. When he says, the days will come when the bridegroom, when I am taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. This makes for another odd picture, doesn't it? Because how do the bride and the groom typically leave a wedding? Like together, right? You don't have the bride and groom saying, hey, I'm going to take my car, you take your car, we'll meet up later, right? Yeah, we'll check back. No, they're going together. He's thinking, I'm not leaving without you, babe. <laughs> now, he's focused. And then how do the guests leave? However they want. They're just not leaving with the bridegroom, bride and the groom, right? Like, you, you leave separately. You go on. But look what we have here. Jesus is saying the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And he's the bridegroom, right? It's Jesus' first allusion to his coming death. A day when joy will be exchanged for sorrow, when celebration will be turned to mourning. And this is where we need to understand Mark's original audience here. 
the Roman Christians who are suffering under the persecution of Roman Emperor Nero. They're hiding in the catacombs. They're, they're facing suffering. They're fleeing for their lives because here's what they were intended to hear from this. This is what you, me, Christian, are intended to hear from this today. At Christian, there will be days when Jesus seems far from you. Understand this. There will be days when Jesus seems far from you. And these will be the days to fast. These will be the days to fast. The life of a Christian will not be one of perpetual bliss. Yes, we are to be joyful, but there will be seasons of deep mourning, suffering, conflict, pain, fear, controversy, if we faithfully follow Christ. We need not look any further than Jesus as our example. As he lived a life of suffering from beginning to end, substituting his life for ours so that he could pay our price for our sin. And as Christians, now reflecting upon the work of Christ upon the cross, we should, when confronted with our sin, it should cause us to grieve. Yes, we we know he is in control. Yes, we know we have been forgiven. But sin should always still cause us to grieve as we pursue holiness. We should never be lackadaisical and happy in our sin. This is why there are appropriate times to fast from things like food and water. Why? Because we, when we, why do, what do we do when we don't eat or drink? What happens? We get hungry, right? We get thirsty. Now, none of this is being done in a legalistic manner. None of this is being done in a manner of, well, you better do this like once a week or twice a week or for this many hours or this long. None of that. The whole purpose is behind focusing our attention upon Christ. So when we have those hunger pains, when we have those thirsts that, that begins to go unquenched, what are we reminded of? Our attention is reminding us how dependent we are upon Christ. So in that moment where those hunger pains arise, we don't eat, but what do we do instead? We we spend time in prayer. We turn our our thoughts to to God's Word. We, We go to Him to fill that spiritual hunger. Our hunger and our thirst are to remind us that our hunger and thirst for Jesus must be greater than the sin that grips us. We must look and see that our hunger and thirst for Jesus is to so captivate us that the sufferings of this world are to be understood rightly for what they are. Temporal. They're just temporal. Jesus is all satisfying. Because here's what's going to happen one day, brothers and sisters. Here's what's going to happen one day. We who are in Christ will be united with the bridegroom once and for all. Because his death wasn't the end. The grave was not the last chapter. The mourning and fear that filled those disciples the night after his his crucifixion quickly turned to celebration. When what? They realized he was alive. The, The grave could not contain him. So must ours turn to celebration. Yes, we must grieve our sin. Yes, we must fight our sin. Yes, we must pursue holiness with all that we have. But when it's all said and done, 
when it's all said and done, we need to fix our thoughts upon the empty tomb and rejoice in the grace of God. We need to be a people who are rejoicing that the victory has been obtained. And one day, one day, we as a people will stand before God with Christ, sins atoned for, debt paid in full, victorious for all of eternity, celebrating never to fast again, never to mourn again. See, the real question here isn't why Jesus' his disciples did not fast. That's the wrong question being asked. The real question is why the Pharisees didn't feast and celebrate in the presence of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Why are they not celebrating? They're sitting over in the corner going, they're missing it. They're at the world's greatest party and they're missing it. They're sitting over the side pouting. So with two short parables, Jesus provides a stunning rebuke. He informs them and us that, that he came to make things new. Not to make the old better. See, Jesus didn't come just to make the old things better. He didn't come for a renovation project. He didn't come to slap a fresh coat of paint on us sinners to make us look pretty. I mean, you can put makeup on a pig, but what is it? It's still a pig, right? I'm going back to my redneck references for a second. But what both parables refer to is the incompatibility with the the new with the old. The new patch and the new wine are incompatible with the old cloth and the old wineskins. Any attempt to to combine them both is going to destroy them. It's going to destroy the old. You want to put in a new unshrunk patch on old pants? What's it going to do? It's going to tear it. You want to put new wine in old wineskins? What's going to happen? That expanding fermentation is going to go boom. And it's going to blow it all up. See, what both of these parables are doing, are referring to, is how Jesus, how Christianity is, is, relates to traditional Judaism, relates to the law. The law having always been a shadow of Christ. See, this is what we need to understand. When you're reading your Bibles, everything in the Old Testament is a shadow that's pointing us to Jesus. Everything in the Scriptures is pointing us to Jesus. Always has been. And Jesus here, in these parables, is identifying himself as a new patch, as a new wine. Why is he doing that? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm not an attachment. I'm not a mere addition to the status quo. I'm not even a clearer picture of the shadow. I'm the real thing. It's time to celebrate. The old is gone. The new has come. Celebrate. I'm with you in this moment. He's telling us, celebrate. See, Jesus did not come, no matter what you've heard, he did not come to give you a better life. He did not come to give you a better life. He came to make you a totally new person. Totally new person. And here's what's so beautiful about the gospel. 
We don't come all put together. We don't. We try to, don't we? We try to. We, we, we want to kind of like, I'll, I'll come to God once I get this taken care of. I'll come when I get this fixed. And we, got, we, we look like just somebody got glue all over us, like just all over the place. We're trying to piecemeal and patch ourselves together. But what's going to happen? You pour water in that thing, what's going to happen? Pour wine in that old wine skin, what's going to happen? It's not going to hold. But see what Jesus does. When we come to him humble and broken and shattered, pieces all over the ground, everywhere. He doesn't just sit around, like, oh, let me grab this piece and this piece and let's make you a, a, a newer, prettier version of yourself. Let's, let's, let's add these things here and there. No. What's he do? He makes you a totally new person. You, you are, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are atoned for. He makes us new. And you know what that is? It's both controversial and glorious. See, the question being posed by the image of the wedding feast in these two small parables, it's not a question of whether or not we we will make room for, for Jesus in our already busy lives. I think that's often the case. People think of it like, huh, let me see if I can make room for Jesus in my busy schedule. Then I can add him in. I can, I can fit in a few hours here. And I, can, I can maybe fit in a, a few minutes over here. Jesus is not asking for room in our already busy schedules. He's not coming in and say, hey, can you add me like a patch? Can you fill me like an old container? No, the, the question is, will we heed the call of Jesus to join the celebration? Will we become entirely new vessels, entirely new people for the expanding fermentation of Jesus and the gospel in our lives? The question is, will we respond like the paralytic? When Jesus says your sins are forgiven, will we get up and walk and follow him? Will we follow like Matthew? Or will we follow like the scribes? These are all questions that we need to answer as we leave here today. Lord, as we reflect upon your word, we praise you for for your love and your grace. We thank you for your son's humility to take on flesh and live among us. To live among us as 100% man and 100% God. We thank you for for the life, his death, his example. We thank you that you don't call us to do anything that you haven't first made possible through your son, Jesus. So Lord, forgive us when we are unfaithful. Forgive us for our sin. Continue to convict us of our sin through your spirit and help us to continue to pursue holiness. Oh, Lord, let us be a holy, joyful, celebratory people as we reflect upon the person and work of your Son. May we remain faithful to proclaiming the truth of the gospel, no matter the cost. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you stand and respond to the God's word?